Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two top today. We'll hear from Anatole Levin on what else? The war in Ukraine. And then Anne Rumberger on abortion politics, notably the transformation of conservative Christians' early tolerance into fervent opposition. Anatole Levin, a frequent guest in this show, wrote a piece for the Quincy Institute website, the D.C.-based think tank where he's a fellow, on diminishing prospects for peace in Ukraine and rising risks of more generalized war. The interview was recorded early this week, and at that point, Russia had not yet formally annexed portions of eastern Ukraine. They're now in the process of doing that, so that issue has been resolved, and the prospects for peace have been rendered grimmer. At the end of the interview, I'll read some comments on that development Levin made for me this morning. In the 1980s and 1990s, Anatole Levin covered the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and the wars in Afghanistan, Chechnya, and the Southern Caucasus for the Financial Times and the Times of London. He's now a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Anatole Levin. The gloomy events just uh, keep coming. First of all, what do you make of this referendum that Russia is staging? There is a possibility that this is like the declarations of independence in the Donbass in 2014, which uh, Russia did not actually recognize. It didn't recognize Donbass independence until eight years later on the eve of of the invasion this February. So there is a possibility that Russia will bank this as a diplomatic bargaining counter and will not move to accept the referenda and immediately annex these territories to Russia. If it does annex them to Russia, then basically any, any hope of a negotiated peace settlement has disappeared because that can never be accepted by Ukraine or the West. There is still a possibility that, uh, well, at some stage, no doubt, there will be a ceasefire, either resulting from uh, a Ukrainian victory or Ukrainian exhaustion or a combination of the two. I mean, you know, Ukraine gets back enough to be able to claim victory, but loses so heavily in the process that it decides not to fight on. But um, yeah, if Russia annexes these territories that it's occupied, then a ceasefire is the, the most that we can hope for. And it will take a considerable time to get to the point and huge casualties to get to the point where um, where even a ceasefire is possible. Should, assuming the vote would be counted honestly, should the people of these regions vote to join Russia? Should we read that as a legitimate desire or is the whole process illegitimate from the start? In Crimea... Uh, which Russia occupied and annexed in 2014. Most independent observers have said, and certainly from my previous trips to, to, to Crimea, that in fact the great majority of local people did want to join Russia, remembering that this territory was part of Russia until 1954 and was transferred by Soviet decree, and that the uh, the referendum result was in fact fair and legitimate. That could also be true on the referenda in the Donbass, the eastern Donbass, because there too, like others, I found traveling to those regions that there was a lot of desire to separate from Ukraine after the revolution of 2014. As though to the, the areas that Russia has occupied since um, since February, A, we just don't know, and B, I mean, obviously, that there cannot possibly be a free and fair or legitimate referendum under circumstances of military occupation when so much of the population has fled and become refugees. So no, A, we just don't know. I mean, there there always was a a lot of sympathy for Russia in these areas, but one can imagine that given the destruction uh, and the loss of life caused by the Russian invasion, that may very well have disappeared. And in any case, there is simply no way of judging it honestly or objectively at present. You write uh, in your most recent piece, the window of opportunity for a peaceful settlement in Ukraine is narrowing fast. It does, however, still exist. So why is the window narrowing? Well, because Putin is addressing Parliament on Friday after the results of the referendum, 
the general assumption, which, as I say, could be wrong, but could also be right, is that he will then announce annexation. And then, as I say, the, the possibility of a negotiated solution simply disappears. If our leaders had you know, any degree of vision, moral courage, feeling of true responsibility to their own citizens, they would seek to preempt that by an offer of negotiations on a compromise peace. But there is, of course, no chance of them doing that. What exactly is their position now? The European position is that they are, well, some Europeans, you know, notably the Poles and the Balts, are just totally anti-Russian for historical reasons. The British have decided to engage in their great power fantasies, pantomimes, you know, by taking uh, the strongest possible line against Russia, which, of course, is they only do with American backing. The French and Germans appear to have abandoned any independent foreign policy whatsoever and simply handed it over to the keeping of America. And the, the Biden administration has declared that peace talks are purely a matter for the Ukrainians and you know, America has no say. Well, I mean, that is a gross abdication of moral responsibility and responsibility towards American citizens. But not at all credible either, is it? Well, no, I mean, Moscow doesn't take it seriously at all. But the point is, America has been described as virtually a co-belligerent in this war. Certainly, I mean, if things were reversed and Russia were massively arming an enemy of the United States, providing it with intelligence which has killed a whole row of generals, um, you know, sunk a Russian warship, we would see Russia undoubtedly as a belligerent. So saying that America, you know, has no say... Uh, but also, of course, um, you know, Ukraine is only fight is only able to fight on because of massive American financial and military aid. As a result, America is also running very considerable risks, risks to the world economy, risks to the well-being of ordinary Americans. And God forbid, in the very last resort, risks of nuclear war. So, of course, that gives America not just the right, but also the duty to play a part in, in any peace settlement. But of course, the whole atmosphere in Washington is now so toxic that uh, even if it had any will to do so, the Biden administration would simply be too afraid to make any proposals. And so the easy way out is to, is to say, oh, well, this is a matter for the Ukrainians. But of course, the Ukrainians are very understandably too angry to contemplate a peace settlement by now. But also Zelensky, who in the past put forward some very sensible basic ideas for an agreement, is now, it seems, so much hostage to his own hardliners, especially in the military, that he couldn't propose peace even if he wanted to. So, you know, we've got ourselves into a position where the safety of the United States and the West is hostage not just to the Ukrainian government, but to extremist forces in Ukraine, which seems lunatic to me. You described a toxic atmosphere in Washington. Could you uh, do the pathological examination of that toxicity? What's the nature of it? Where's it coming from? What's its expression? What's its aim and hope? There always was bitter hostility to, to, to Russia in Washington and, of course, linked to the desire of the Washington establishment for global domination against which Russia, like China, is, is an obstacle. But of course, the Russian invasion and the atrocities that have, and destruction that have accompanied it have also very correctly raised you know, tremendous extra hostility to Russia among uncommitted people. But, I mean, in the first place, you can see how at the same time this is such, has been such a wonderful opportunity for people in Washington to sweep under the carpet, to completely obliterate from public memory all their own ghastly mistakes of the past 20 years, you know, because now everything is concentrated on helping Ukraine fight Russia. But secondly, um, you know, even uh, when hatred is justified, it's not the best counsellor for rational policies. And at the moment, the Ukrainian government says that it is going to fight on until it's reconquered all its lost territory, including Crimea, which Russia has held since 2014. The vast majority of Russians, um, not just the establishment, believe that, that, that Crimea is, is simply part of Russia now. 
And I have been told that should the Ukrainians get to the point where they are uh, seem likely to reconquer Crimea, that, that is a circumstance in which Russia might use nuclear weapons. So the risks here are enormous. But nobody wants to be a, a statesman and uh, step above all these concerns <laughs> for the sake of world peace and survival. Well, it takes moral courage. I mean, the French or the Germans, I, I'm, I'm convinced, could, could have prevented this catastrophe just by saying publicly, which everyone knew in private, that uh, Ukraine was not going to be a member of NATO because we're not prepared actually ourselves to go to war to defend it, and therefore that they would veto Ukrainian NATO membership. If they'd said that and had come out strongly in favor of actually implementing the, the Minsk agreement on autonomy for the Donbass and said that you know Ukraine's progress towards Europe would be conditional on this, it would have actually given Putin enough to prevent the war. But of course, that would have led to a split in the European Union. It would have required France and Germany really to stand up to the United States. Uh, it would have required guts, which they don't have. And speaking of the Western Europeans, they're facing the prospect of freezing in the dark this winter. What will that do for uh, support for this uh, continued warlike position? Freezing in the dark is probably an, an exaggeration because emergency measures have been taken to make sure that basic heating and you know, cooking and so forth at home can continue whatever happens. The bigger danger uh, is the danger to industry. You already see a number of important industries uh, shutting down, I mean, temporarily, but still, or planning to do so, because the energy supplies are just not there. And they can't run for various reasons on a part-time or partial basis. Well, I mean, if this intensifies over the winter and um, leads to a deep economic recession, then maybe there will be a movement for a compromise peace. But there still has to be a basis for a compromise peace. And it may well be that by the end of this week, Putin will have, will have ruled that out. But of course, all this also depends on extraneous factors. A huge question will be whether this is a a mild or a harsh winter. If it's a mild winter, I think Europe will probably get through more or less okay. If it's a hard winter, then things could indeed get pretty difficult. This massive call-up in Russia, there was a lot of talk from the beginning of this war that uh, that was a risk that he would not want to take, that it alienate the broad Russian population whose patients maybe have been wearing thin even before this. First of all, what does it mean? Uh, what is it a signal of? How desperate is Russia's situation? But second, what will it do for Putin's domestic standing? Well, I think it is a sign of desperation. And uh, also, as you say, I mean, he was afraid to do this uh, because of fear of the public reaction. And he was right, because it's been apparent for months that Russia needed more men in Ukraine or it would be outnumbered because the Ukrainians had declared mass mobilization uh, and Russia hadn't. So Putin's long hesitation shows his assessment that indeed this is a very dangerous step from his point of view. And I think the protests and the mass flight and attempts to evade service show that he was, um, he was absolutely right to be afraid of the Russian reaction. But on the other hand, this should be the moment, therefore, when the, the, the West says, OK, look, you've recognised that your initial plan has totally failed. Let's sit down and see if we can work out a, a compromise. The other thing which you know, Western coverage hardly acknowledges at all, which is, it seems to me monstrous, I mean, in, in terms of failed analysis, is that because of Russia's failures and Ukraine's victories and our support in the first months of the war, this isn't the existential struggle for Ukraine, uh, let alone for, as I read by some idiot this morning, that the whole of European democracy depends on this. It doesn't. The great majority of Ukraine, just about everything that Ukraine holds today, whatever happens, uh, is now going to be fully independent of Russia. Russia has been defeated in its goal to subjugate Ukraine and turn it into a client state. Now, that is a colossal historic victory for Ukraine and defeat for Russia. Not just if you look at Putin's maximal aims at the start of this war, but if you look at the history of the past 400 years. So in other words, you know, we've already achieved a great victory. The Ukrainians have already achieved a great victory. 
Going on to aim at total Russian defeat does look a bit, well, A, hubristic, but B, dangerous when you are dealing with a a nuclear superpower. And also unnecessary. As I say, when it comes to the really important issues, we've already won. I'm speaking with Anatole Levin, a fellow at the Quincy Institute. That desire for complete Russian defeat really echoes what the Clinton administration's policy was in uh, when the Soviet Union was collapsing. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, in those days, of course, it wasn't phrased in terms of military defeat. The absolute clear and stated, virtually, ambition was that Russia would become a compliant client state of the United States. Limited autonomy, but something more or less like France or or Italy, but with a big difference, which is that the United States, for its part, would not do anything to help Russian security in the Caucasus or or Central Asia, would in fact often try to undermine it. What happened, you see, was that uh, the Wolfowitz Memo of 1992, or the Wolfowitz Doctrine, as it's been called, stated that no other country in the world would have any influence beyond its borders except that allowed by the United States and seen by the United States as in America's interest. Now, at the time, the first Bush administration disavowed that, and it was overwhelmingly criticized and and mocked in America, because, of course, that is a megalomaniac vision. Oh, and by the way, this was supposed to last for all time. This was sort of Fukuyama, geopolitical Fukuyamaism, and, you know, that this was going to be true forever. America would dominate every region of the world. And uh, that that is, in fact, the the program which was implemented by every succeeding US administration as regards Russia beyond its borders. I'm not justifying the Russian invasion, which has been obviously absolutely criminal from every point of view, as well as disastrous. But a long row of very senior analysts um, with deep knowledge of Russia, you know, starting with George Kennan, the architect of containment, said at the time, back in the 1990s, this is going to lead to disaster. It has led to disaster. Of course, Kennan is now read by many as a softy. He, he was the architect of, of containment. But, I mean, he also had a sense of uh, American limits, and he, had a, he also had a sense of what other countries would accept and, I mean, what, what they wouldn't. An almost greater fear of mine is that clearly, if they can finish off Russia, the American establishment will be emboldened to take an even tougher line against China and rolling back Chinese influence beyond its borders. Well, China, of course, is a colossally uh, more formidable proposition than than Russia. And, you know, if America tries to do that, I think the chances of a world war will will be extremely high. The prospect of putting Russia in such a subordinate position to uh, US power seems fantastic, psychotically fanciful. They seriously believe this sort of thing? A great part of the problem was that for 10 years after the end of the Cold War, Russia was in fact in a, an, an extremely weak position, utterly chaotic at home, deeply corrupt, defeated in Chechnya, for God's sake. So a, a mood grew up in Washington, uh, and to some extent in Europe as well, that you could do anything. And there was nothing that Russia could do about it. Sure, they would protest about NATO expansion and so forth, but they couldn't do anything against it. Even after Russia recovered to some degree under Putin, that mood of hubris continued. And that led, you know, America into doing things that it would never have dreamed of doing during the Cold War. Fiona Hill, Trump's NSC person for for Russia, wrote recently that, um, oh, you know, we don't need to really worry about confrontation with Russia because, after all, you know, this is just like the Cold War and we got through the Cold War okay. Well, no, it isn't like the Cold War. During the Cold War, both sides took extreme care to make sure that there would be no proxy warfare in Europe. Of course, Africans, Southeast Asians, Central Americans, that was a different matter. But there was a recognition, first by Stalin and then by Eisenhower, that if you started waging proxy war in Europe, the chances of this escalating to world war and nuclear war would be extremely high. So they didn't do it. But, you know, now we are waging a proxy war in Europe and uh, all bets are off, frankly. We, We just don't know where this will lead. 
How do you read China's role in this? They seem to be keeping their distance from Putin, but not uh, too hostile. What are they thinking? What are they trying to do? Well, China has been extremely cautious so far. You know, I mean, that deserves far greater recognition than it has received here. And that, by the way, I mean, also applies to to many Chinese policies around the world. I mean, quite contrary to the image given by most of the US establishment. And for that, I think there are two reasons. I mean, one, obviously, is, is that they don't want to attract massive Western sanctions. I mean, European as well as, as American before they are fully ready to absorb them. Another reason is that they clearly didn't want this war. They didn't approve of it. They certainly will not approve more Russian formal annexations, just as they have never recognized Russian annexation of Crimea. They oppose the war. And and of course, Russia has also created, I think, a degree of contempt for itself by its military failures and chaos and so forth. That explains China's great reserve. But on the other hand, the United States uh, is now clearly moving away from the one China policy towards turning Taiwan into an ally. You cannot make these repeated statements by Biden, plus all the stuff emanating from the US Congress, without the Chinese taking note of it. If they fear, as they have good reason to, that the future will see more and more American hostility to them and arming of Taiwan and attempts, you know, at close containment of China. They have a colossal motive to try to pin America down in Ukraine in terms of resources. But also, at that point, the Chinese really cannot afford to see Russia crippled as a state. It would leave China very seriously isolated on the world stage. And it would be, if this led to another period of absolute chaos like the 1990s, it would completely undermine Belt and Road. And it would also, I mean, threaten vital Chinese overland energy supplies. So my sense is that if the US and the West press on for complete Russian defeat, at some point you will see Chinese strategy change and China start to give really serious aid to Russia. Not not sending Chinese troops, that's never going to happen, but very large quantities of weapons and financial support. And finally, uh, at the beginning of the war, there was a lot of talk that Putin might face some kind of internal coup from the Russian elite, uh, especially if the war didn't go well. Now we're seeing that the sanctions haven't seemed to do that much damage to the Russian economy. How do you read um, Putin standing with the Russian elite? Well, I mean, I know that there is very considerable anger outside the inmost circle because people were not consulted. And also, I mean, it just has gone so badly. It was it was conducted with monstrous incompetence. And especially, you know, you can't base your regime on the intelligence services and then get the intelligence about Ukraine so totally wrong as Putin has. So his prestige has been very badly damaged. And I think another major defeat, like the last one in Kharkov, will probably lead to a movement to get rid of him. And the successor will certainly then blame Putin for everything that's gone wrong. I mean, by the way, to get Putin to step down, the attempt would be to get him to step down consensually with agreement. Um, And, you know, as with Putin and Yeltsin, guarantee his property, guarantee his personal safety, and that of the family and of any other close associates who have to step down like the defense minister. But of course, people trying to move against Putin in that way would be taking a very considerable risk. But also, what would be the advantage if the West still didn't offer a compromise peace? Well, I suppose the advantage would be that the next president could evade personal responsibility for the disasters and then call for complete mobilization of the Russian people because he'd say, you know, look, I'm awfully sorry, this wasn't my fault. It was all the you know, disasters of the Putin regime. But since the West has rejected compromise, we have no choice but to fight on, you know, with all the resources at our disposal. So in other words, I mean, what I'm saying is that um, I think there is a possibility now of Putin being got rid of. But, I mean, this will not bring advantages to us unless we are prepared, you know, actually to to try to compromise with the succeeding president. Which, uh, at the current uh, 
situation seems very unlikely. Uh, indeed, it does. Yeah, I mean, I ardently hope for peace, but I mean, as as an analyst, I I cannot honestly think that I that it's likely. That was Anatole Levin, Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. The Institute is based in D.C. Levin is based in London. I asked Anatole to comment on Russia's annexation of bits of Ukraine. Here's what he had to say. It rules out peace negotiations. There will still be a ceasefire one day, but only after either a victory for one side or a long and bloody stalemate. It's a sign of desperation on Putin's part. Nobody will accept this, not even the Chinese. On the plus side, it means that this is no longer an existential struggle for Ukraine. Putin has obviously given up on dominating the whole of Ukraine and is now just trying to claim some sort of success for his disastrous war by claiming small amounts of territory in the east and south, most of which Russia controlled before February. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. As I walk this wicked world Searching for light in the darkness of insanity Oh yeah, I ask myself Is all hope gone? Is there only pain, hatred and misery? And each time I feel like this inside There's one thing I want to know What's so funny about peace, love and understanding What's so funny about peace, love, understanding That was some of a gloomy version of What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, made famous by Elvis Costello, performed live by Nick Lowe, the guy who wrote the song, at Austin's KGSR at some point in the misty past. Next, abortion politics. Although opposition to abortion practically defines the Christian right today, it wasn't always so. They once tolerated it, even approved of it. In a recent piece in Salvage, which describes itself as a biannual journal of revolutionary arts and letters, Anne Rumberger delves into that history. She's an activist with NYC for abortion rights and also in the New York City chapter of DSA. Her writing has appeared in Jacobin, Left Voice, and Biopolitical Times. Anne Rumberger. The Brown v. Board of Education decision, which uh, ordered the desegregation of the public schools, had a profoundly energizing effect on conservative Christians. What happened and uh, how did that shape them for the future? The Brown v. Board of Education decision was in 1954, and it set out the decision of of separate but equal. Um, And this decision didn't actually desegregate large portions of the South, as we know. So a lot of Jim Crow laws uh, stayed in place. There were a lot of uh, segregated areas and segregated schools, especially in the South. And the reaction of a lot of conservative Christians in the South was to just set up private schools that could maintain segregated private schools. Um, And so they saw that as sort of a workaround. After desegregation became kind of more widely practiced, setting up these private schools, these private religious institutions were their way of uh, working around the law and making sure that they could continue to discriminate based on race. This changed in the late 1960s when a group of Black parents in Mississippi brought a suit against the state-segregated private schools. Um, So they argued that schools that practice discrimination should not get tax-exempt status. Um, And this was upheld in the Supreme Court in 1971 in a case called Green v. Connolly. And so after that case was decided, Richard Nixon ordered the IRS to revoke tax exemptions for any segregated schools. And this was a huge catalyst for the conservative Christian movement later to become the new religious right. It really galvanized a lot of evangelical leaders, um, especially Jerry Falwell, the most famous of them. And this basically meant that the government enforcement of desegregation was sort of a political awakening for a lot of 
disengaged white evangelicals in the South. And there's a lot of evidence, especially this historian Randall Bomber, who's written a number of books about this, who uh, has interviewed people and looked through the archives and is has said that the Green v. Connolly Supreme Court decision, which revoked the tax-exempt status of these segregation academies in the South, was really the major issue that attracted a lot of uh, conservative Christians and the Christian school community to politics. Before this fight, a lot of evangelicals were not that engaged in politics. There were definitely uh, religious evangelical religious leaders who were trying to gain political influence and, um, you know, kind of become friends with Republican presidential leaders. But uh, for the most part, evangelicals as a base, you know, as a voting bloc hadn't quite been organized yet. Um, So this catalyst was really what spurred a lot of evangelicals uh, to political uh, awakening and to political action. There's a couple of different ways of interpreting this or of telling the story. You know, I think one version of this really emphasizes the role of conservative political uh, operatives like Paul Weyrich, who was the founder of the Heritage Foundation. He was really integral to the foundation of the religious right. And he really seized on the issue of abortion as sort of a, a way to cohese a movement, to organize a an evangelical political movement that could be organized as a voting block for conservative causes and for the Republican Party who they were organizing to support more of these conservative causes. So it wasn't just abortion that they were concerned about. It was a prayer in public schools. It was fighting against, you know, what they saw as like the the gay, uh, like advance of gay rights. You know, it was all these other conservative issues. But it really was this tax-exempt status for private segregated schools that first activated the evangelical religious right. The religious right, conservative Christians, whatever we call them, they weren't so concerned about abortion when Roe v. Wade came down in 73, but they were by the end of the decade. What happened? In the beginning, you know, even in the in the 60s and up through the late 1970s, the majority of evangelicals were not that interested in abortion. A lot of the main denominations, uh, such as the Southern Baptist Convention, were actually somewhat supportive of abortion initially. This was partly because they saw abortion as a Catholic issue, um, and there was still a lot of division between evangelicals and Catholics and a lot of mistrust there. So the Southern Baptist Convention actually passed a resolution in the early 70s um, where they supported abortion in certain cases, such as rape, incest, and to protect the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. And a lot of leaders in uh, evangelical religious leaders were pretty supportive or kind of cautiously supportive of abortion in the early 70s. A lot changed, you know, kind of between the early 1970s and, you know, maybe 1979. Some of this was uh, the kind of political machinations of people like Paul Weyrich, who were, you know, kind of purposefully trying to organize, uh, you know, this evangelical voting bloc uh, and find an issue that would mobilize conservative Christian voters. But some of it was cultural. I think a big part of it was also that as abortion became legal and accepted, um, so in some states, actually, in, in New York, in California, in Hawaii, in Alaska, you know, there were a handful of states before Roe v. Wade that legalized elective abortion. New York was a key state because it did not have any residency restrictions. So thousands and thousands of women traveled to New York to get an abortion before 1973. And after Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973, the number of abortions obviously hugely spiked. And quite a few people, not not just Catholics, but a lot of Protestants started to feel a little bit queasy and a little uncomfortable with the number of abortions that were happening. It was partly that discomfort, partly that people were being organized in their churches to oppose abortion. And it was partly a shift in how evangelicals related to politics more generally. 
there, there were a lot of people who were really integral to the shift of evangelicals thinking of themselves as political actors um, and getting organized around abortion and other conservative political issues. So Jerry Falwell is a really key one. He was a influential Southern Baptist pastor and a televangelist and He founded the Moral Majority in the late 1970s and um, hosted a lot of rallies, which he called I Love America rallies. He grew his evangelical fan base. Uh, He really liked to preach that the Christian way of life was under threat. Um, And he was really key to calling evangelicals to political action. While previously, many evangelicals, they were not very involved in politics, and a lot of people believed that politics was tainted, and it was against their religious beliefs to be involved in politics. Um, But Jerry Falwell changed that. So he actually spoke out against the separation of church and state. Um, He said the separation of church and state was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running our own country. So he was a really key figure in organizing conservative evangelicals into politics. Um, And they were obviously extremely key in the election of Ronald Reagan in 1970. 1980. Oh, sorry, 1980. (laughs) Yes, of course. How do you account for the intensity of feelings around abortion on the religious right? They see it as an index of social decay, moral decline, a war in traditional values. Or is it, as some people say, mostly about controlling women and their bodies? How do you explain it? Yeah, I think a lot of it is about control. But to a lot of evangelical leaders and and activists in the anti-abortion movement, they like to frame it as actually about women's empowerment and about human rights. So there's actually this like very interesting moment during the kind of early years of the anti-abortion movement, which was dominated by Catholics, where they framed the pro-life movement, which hadn't really been called the pro-life movement yet. Uh, they framed it as a human rights issue. Now, these Catholics were often quite socially liberal, right? They didn't share the rest of the, um, the political package. Yeah, that's right. So a, a lot of early anti-abortion activists who were Catholics in the 1960s considered themselves liberal. And part of fighting against uh, abortion for them, it was also tied to fighting against poverty, to supporting unwed pregnant mothers. It was tied to, in some cases, uh, anti-war activism, anti-nuclear activism, anti-poverty initiatives. Um, so there were a lot of liberal Catholic anti-abortion activists in the early days who saw the abortion as a human rights issue. And they framed it that way, partly because they wanted to appeal to non-Catholics. So, you know, in the early, earlier part of the 60s, you know, when it was a predominantly Catholic movement, and it was very much connected to their fight against contraception, they were unable to attract any interest beyond the Catholic base. And a lot of people, you know, were supportive of increasing access to contraception. um, And they just had very different views on sexual morality. And so in an effort to uncouple the movement against abortion from the movement against contraception uh, and Catholic religious doctrine, they framed it as a human rights issue. So they fought for the right to life of the fetus. And they really appealed to a lot of liberals who were much more convinced by this rights-based value system, which they didn't see as connected to uh, any kind of Catholic religious doctrine. It was uh, you know, obvious to, to liberals that they wanted to support any human rights issues. So they were able to kind of slowly appeal to a more diverse group of people by using this rights-based language. Then when the pro-choice movement became adopted as a women's rights issue by the second wave feminist movement in the late 1960s, there was a clash between kind of two different rights-based frameworks. So it became the human right of the fetus kind of uh, opposed to the human rights of the pregnant woman and whose rights ultimately won out. And at that point, it became much more complicated for liberals to decide which which side they wanted to support. So a lot of, you know, anti-abortion religious, like liberal Catholics found it much more difficult to frame their movement as a human rights movement when it was directly opposed to the rights of women. But that initially was a really smart 
rhetorical move for these pro-life Catholics to use this human rights framework. I'm speaking with Ann Rumberger, author of a piece in Salvage on the history of the Christian rights abortion politics. But today, uh, Catholic opinion on abortion is little different from the general population. Yeah, exactly. Today, liberal, I'm sure there are still many liberal Catholics, you know, who would prefer to have a pro-life movement that also supported poverty reduction and social services. But the anti-abortion movement really changed a lot as more conservative Christians, you know, evangelicals and fundamentalists joined it. And the kind of liberal part of the movement that not only supported abortion bans, first fighting against abortion liberalization laws in the states, and then later on fighting for constitutional protection for the unborn uh, and fighting against more abortion liberalization, they kind of dropped their commitment to poverty reduction and to social services and to support for poor women and support for unwed pregnant women. That changed as the movement became more dominated by evangelical Christians. And now on the um, evangelical side, Francis Schaeffer, a theologian, and C. Everett Koop, future Surgeon General, made a movie, Whatever Happened to the Human Race. Um, what did that do uh, for, what was that about? And what, was it, what did it do for the anti-abortion movement? Francis Schaeffer was a really interesting figure in the anti-abortion movement. He was a Presbyterian minister and an evangelical writer. And he uh, set up this retreat in Switzerland called Labrie and lived there for decades and uh, welcomed a number of liberals and conservatives um, to this retreat where he would preach and get to know people. And he kind of got involved in anti-abortion, the movement a lot later. What it shows is that his son, Frankie, actually was the one that instigated his interest in the anti-abortion movement. But he uh, started writing books and doing lectures all about how secular humanism was rotting the culture of the United States and of the world, that the secularization was leading to the moral decay of the country. So he put together a, a series of short films called Whatever Happened to the Human Race in 1979 with an evangelical doctor. And they toured the country with these short films. And they wrote a book that went along with it. In the movie and in the book, they argue uh, against abortion and they argue against euthanasia. So their argument was that legalizing abortion would mean the decline of respect for all human life. And that would inevitably lead to killing the elderly, the disabled, anybody whose lives could be deemed not valuable anymore. The movies are incredible. You can watch them all on YouTube. There's a really interesting scene in, in one of them that shows um, a bunch of plastic baby dolls strewn across the shores of the Dead Sea while he talks about the millions of unborn babies that have been aborted since Roe v. Wade. There's also an incredibly uh, offensive scene of Black people being led up the steps of the Supreme Court building in D.C. in chains talking about how abortion is modern day, is akin to slavery. He makes a lot of comparisons to abortion as a modern day Holocaust. So these uh, metaphors, which were part of the anti-abortion movement since its beginning, were really popularized partly as a result of this film series. And it doesn't seem like the film series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, really reached beyond the evangelical subculture, but it did create very radical active evangelical anti-abortion activists. So a lot of evangelicals. Yeah, it's really important to activate your subculture. Oh, it? yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of people who saw the films became very passionate about the abortion issue. And a lot of those people went on to be very active and lead anti-abortion uh, activity for years to come afterwards. He was really key in that. He also really influenced Jerry Falwell. Uh, so Jerry Falwell cites Francis Schaeffer's books as turning him on to the uh, abortion debate. And Jerry Falwell uses a lot of the same metaphors and a lot of the same talking points um, that Schaeffer uses. Um, and, and part of Schaeffer's point in writing these books and making this film, you know, it was very much tied to abortion for him, but it was much bigger than abortion. So he really saw uh, evangelicals as not being involved in 
in culture and in politics, and that that was a real problem. And that that was actually leading, was part of the problem of leading this to, you know, to this moral decay. So he was trying to get evangelicals to participate more, to turn back the tide of secularization, to speak out against the new sexual revolution, um, and to be active participants in supporting this kind of conservative family values politics more generally. And uh, one of the people they influenced was Randall Terry, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Randall Terry was hugely influenced by Francis Schaeffer. Um, So Randall Terry was the founder of Operation Rescue, and Operation Rescue was one of the most militant anti-abortion organizations. Randall Terry was famous for taking this movement, which was sort of uh, originally much more of a a Catholic-led sit-in movement, it was originally called, kind of protests outside of abortion clinics. And Randall Terry translated that into more recognizable language for fundamentalists. He led a number of protests. He started in uh, upstate New York um, and then kind of expanded and created this really national movement of militant direct action outside of abortion clinics. Operation Rescue was the largest of these groups. So thousands of people were arrested from the late 1980s into the mid-1990s. He kind of took this movement that had been kind of a majority Catholic organization or majority Catholic movement and appealed to evangelicals and fundamentalists. His tactics were pretty militant, so he would block clinic entrances. Sometimes he would organize you know, hundreds of people to stand in front of clinics so that the clinics would have to shut down because nobody could get in or out. They would refuse to follow police direction when they were arrested, so many of them would go limp, forcing police officers to carry each person away from the door, which would often take hours if there were so many of them. And Terry really appealed to evangelicals to get involved in pro-life activism um, using Francis Schaeffer's higher law theories. He would say to people that you can break man's law because you're obeying God's law. Um, And he called these movements rescues. So that was a kind of a rhetorical shift. Before Randall Terry came along, these kind of organized attempts to uh, blockade clinic doors, they were seen more as like 1960s style, almost like liberal civil disobedience, because that was sort of the origin of this tactic uh, was from the civil rights movement. But Randall Terry translated it. He called on evangelicals to use civil disobedience to protest abortion, and then he changed the the language of it. Um, so by calling them rescues, it was much easier for evangelicals to get involved. They kind of understood the movement as being about biblical obedience and about you know kind of using this tactic to protest abortion, which they had been told at this point was part of a larger conservative family values agenda. Finally, what uh, do you think that uh, defenders of abortion can learn from this movement? And we've seen in the months since the overturning of Roe, uh, we've seen a lot of complaint, but not much in the way of political mobilization in a meaningful way. Uh, the movement has seemed to, or if you can call it a movement, has seemed to rely on lobbying and litigation, vote Democrat, invoking the Constitution. Is that enough? Is there something we can learn from the uh, anti-abortionists? Yeah, I think there's a lot we can learn from them. I mean, they're definitely extremely organized. So I think we can we can definitely learn that, you know, we need a national organization or at least a national movement, you know, that can kind of cohere all of the different grassroots local movements into one more powerful, more organized movement. I think we can also, you know, return to the tactics of civil disobedience and direct action. So these were tactics that were primarily used in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, you know, they were co-opted really effectively by the anti-abortion movement. And they've been underutilized, I think, by the pro-abortion movement. You know, it's definitely been the case, the the militancy of the pro-abortion and the feminist movement um, has vanished, you know, since uh, since the 70s. You know, I think a lot of people just took for granted that we had access to abortion once Roe v. Wade passed. And, you know, there was no longer this need to be so militant. Um, and I think that was a huge mistake. 
Um, so I think we need to return to that militancy. And we also need to organize ourselves with much more radical demands. So I think, you know, kind of following the lead of, of mainstream pro-abortion groups, like mainstream groups like Planned Parenthood uh, and NARAL and, you know, kind of democratic politicians who are supportive of abortion is just not enough. We definitely need a more cohesive and more radical movement that's uh, kind of organized around reproductive justice demands. So not just demanding access to abortion, but also demanding support for people who choose to have children. Um, So I think our movement does need to be much more connected to other radical demands for things like, you know, higher wages and for family leave and for sick leave and for fully funded daycare and for all of these services that would actually support people who choose to have children Uh, that needs to be just as important to our demands as access to abortion, you know, as well as universal health care, I think is a is a huge part of the demand, you know, as part of the reproductive justice framework. And the anti-abortionists were very skilled at using emotion and imagery uh, to mobilize. Yeah, that's very true. In this uh, tactic kind of took off in 1970, the use of severe of fetal imagery. Um, So before then, you know, the Catholic movement was a little bit squeamish about kind of going into the details about what abortion procedures actually entailed. They really changed their tactics once New York and Hawaii and Alaska legalized elective abortion. They really recognized that it was only a matter of time before abortion was widely available everywhere. And they started using fetal imagery as a way of playing off of people's emotions and kind of sensationalizing this procedure. There were a number of uh, Catholic doctors who were sympathetic to the pro-life cause, and they would uh, access, you know, uh, hospitals and take photographs during abortion procedures. Um, And those photographs were then widely disseminated to anti-abortion groups. It was a really smart way for them to play on people's discomfort with this procedure I think the pro-abortion side had a hard time countering this, and their response to it was really to just talk about the agency of people who are choosing to have abortions. So they didn't have the same ability to like use highly emotional, visceral experiences of people. That was Anne Rumberger. You can find her article on the topic on the Salvage website at salvage.zone. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this. Some of Pierre Boulez's Sonatine, performed by Claire Chase on flute and Jacob Greenberg on piano. Till next week, bye. <laughs>